Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Eden will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord. Until the people you brought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, in your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. This is God's word. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you that... uh, Your word has lifted our eyes up beyond our present circumstances to consider your character, to consider your great name, your deeds, your glory. And so we thank you that as we open this book, Lord, we are talking about you, that you are present here amongst us. And we ask that by your spirit that you would put in each one of our hearts a holy reverence, a joyful delight, for there is no God like our God. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. (laughs) 
Well, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea has been a source of uh, much debate over the years. One university theologian uh, who was preaching in a rural church at the end of his Bible reading uh, of this very passage, an enthusiastic voice from the congregation uh, shouted out, Praise God for leading his people safely through the raging waters of the Red Sea. Now, he was slightly put out by this overzealous participant, and so he began his sermon by saying this, Well, of course, modern scholarship has shown us that this so-called sea crossing was really no more than a passage through uh, a reedy marsh with the waters only two or three inches deep at the most. He paused and the voice cried out from the church again, Praise God, who in water only two inches deep drowned all of Pharaoh's (laughs) chariots. You know, for those who affirm that ancient Apostles' Creed that we believe in, God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, then the miraculous deliverance in this way is a very easy thing for God to do. The focus of these chapters is not so much on you know, all the mechanics of how the winds blew it back and all of that. The focus is on the God who triumphs gloriously. I hope that's clear as it was read to us earlier so well by David and as we looked at this Uh, chapter 15 together. The point of this whole book of Exodus, um, Phil Ryken in his commentary subtitles his uh, commentary, Saved for God's Glory. And I think that's a great summary of the whole book, the purpose of the whole book, Saved for God's Glory. This is really the focus of the whole book. But we've kind of jumped ahead here. We need first to consider how the people got themselves into this pickle to start off with. Last week we considered the, the great Exodus event of the Passover. Uh, that God who uh, called Moses to confront Pharaoh and tell him to let his enslaved people go. And Pharaoh's response of, well, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And God's reply, well, I'll show you. Uh, just watch me. And uh, turn back to Exodus chapter 6. Because here we have a summary of the book of Exodus, but also a summary of the next four books of the Bible. So it's great if you want to see a summary of five books of the Bible together, isn't it? Or four, uh, four books of the Bible put in here. Exodus 6 and verse 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Here's the storyline, really, from... Exodus right the way into heading into Judges, uh, to Joshua. This is, this is what God says he's going to do. And we're seeing that this is exactly what he did. The terrible plagues culminated, culminated in the 10th plague of, of the death of the firstborn. But for those who applied the Passover lamb, uh, the blood of the Passover lamb to their doorways, their firstborn sons were saved. And that Passover night was the great night of redemption. The night that that Pharaoh begged them to leave, no longer an enslaved people, but a redeemed people. 
And of course, as Christians, we, we are fascinated by these events. They have great significance for us because, first of all, they, really, they, they reveal the same God to us. It is the same God who did these events that we worship and serve today. Secondly, that the, these events are a picture to us of, of, of what Jesus achieved for us on the cross in his great act of redemption. And thirdly, we have a picture here of the, the life of God's redeemed people. You know, as we read from this point on, we're, we're getting a taste, really, of what does it look like to be the redeemed people of God on a pilgrimage, heading to the land that God has promised. As Christians, we're those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. It's, and, and, and now we, we've been saved out of slavery, uh, to sin, to Satan, to our own flesh, and, and, and put on a pilgrimage to the new heavens and the new earth. The place where the full salvation that God has achieved at the cross will be worked out. That is the Christian life. John Bunyan was on to something when he entitled his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. For this is indeed what God's people are. Pilgrims. Uh, blood-bought pilgrims heading to, to the fulfillment of all that God has promised in the, in the gospel. And God's act of redemption creates pilgrims. Here's something that... Um, we jumped over, if you look at chapter 12, the unusual way that they ate this meal. Chapter 12 and verse 11. You eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Now, that's an unusual way to eat your food, isn't it? They've basically got their coat on and they're ready to belt out the door as quickly as they can. That's so that they're, they're dressed ready for a big journey. And really, this, this, this Passover meal, this eating of the lamb, was, was food for their big journey. And it's the same with us in our Christian lives. We, we, when we become Christians, we're turning away from serving this world, from being slaves to it and slaves to our selfish desires and, our des- uh, and, and Satan himself. And we begin on this journey to the promised land. As Romans 12 tells us, so in view of God's mercy, in view of the blood of Christ, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed and we're heading on a journey together. This redemption creates pilgrims. And I've got three points this morning. And my first main point is this. To see that we have a God who leads pilgrims. We have a God who leads pilgrims. Now that's pretty clear from our text. Go back to chapter 13 and verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light. So that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. That's quite an astonishing thing, isn't it? Day by day, a visible sign of the presence of God. God fellowshipping among them, going before them, leading them on. on. There can be no doubt in these wilderness wanderings that Israel was being led by God. His presence was so obvious a cloud, a burning cloud at night time. I guess some of us would, would kind of like that sort of guidance, wouldn't we? Oh Lord, which, which man should I marry? Which woman should I marry? Oh, follow the fiery cloud. 
and, and, and see where it rests over, and that's the one. Oh, that would be, well, that's great. Or, Lord, which, which business should I, which, which job should I do? Follow, follow the cloud, and, and as it settles over that business, you take that job. Well, uh, superficially, it would seem that that would be just terrific, but think what sort of chaos that would be. It worked when the whole people of God were wandering as one, didn't it, through the wilderness. But imagine now that we're settled, a city full of fiery clouds wandering around, and, and if you bumped into another Christian, which cloud would you follow? It would be very confusing, wouldn't it? And of course, the Bible says that God has given us something much better than that. In the New Covenant, he gives the redeemed people uh, the fiery presence of his Holy Spirit. Uh, this is what Jesus taught in the upper room. In John fourteen seventeen. he says this, that he would send another counsel like him, like Jesus, God's Spirit, who would come to live with us and be in us. The Spirit, who he says in chapter 16, will guide us into all truth. And, the, and Peter, in his first letter, says this, The Spirit of glory and of God rests on us. What an amazing thing. With God's Word, you see the Bible, and, and with, with God's Spirit, who, who inspired that Word, who, who illuminates that Word, who lives in us, we have all that we need to guide us safely home to glory. But what we need to see here is how curious God's guidance can be. Living under the divine leadership can take us in some very surprising directions. Look at verse 17, the opening verse of our section. It tells us that uh, God did not lead them on the most direct, shortest route to the promised land. At this crucial turning point in the road... They head south, a long route into the wilderness. Not because they got their guidance wrong, but because they got it right. Now, why is it that they find themselves in this seemingly hopeless situation uh, that we find in chapter 14, this terrible situation? In front of them, the Red Sea. Behind them, the Egyptian army bearing down on them. There they are between the devil and the deep blue sea. How on earth did they find themselves there? Well, because God had led them there. They were following God's guidance. And at, at this point, it looked like God's guiding presence was not a lot of good. You know, with human eyes... Uh, this situation looked totally out of control and a colossal mistake. Look at uh, chapter 14 and verse 10. As, is, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there was, well, quite possibly the best army in the world at that time, thundering down upon them. Uh, with the best uh, technology of their day, chariots and battle-ready horses, and bearing down on them. Now, what hope did they have? I mean, the, the people were terrified and they, and they cried out to Moses, didn't we tell you this was a really bad idea? We didn't really want to leave anyway. It would have been much better to have been a nice slave than out here in the desert. Why did you get us into this mess? And, and on and on they went. God's ways can seem very curious to us. And these chapters indicate that God seems to deliberately lead us at times into, into places of danger into places of disappointment, into places of deprivation, and even despair. And God's ways are, are curious to us, but they're always purposeful. Why does he do this? Well, there's at least three reasons here in the text, I think. 
Firstly, he wants to guarantee our final salvation. Look at uh, verse uh, 17 again. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So he didn't lead them by by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was shorter, because God was committed to getting his pilgrims all the way to the promised land. And God knew in his sovereignty, if he went that quick route, uh, they weren't ready. The NIV kind of suggests that they went out armed with battle, but that's not a very good translation. They weren't ready for battle at all. It's just they marched out in divisions. They were impoverished, poor, hungry slaves leaving Egypt. They weren't ready for any sort of battle at this stage. God led them this different way because he always works to guarantee our final salvation. He he refuses to allow us to meet with trials that might bring that final salvation under threat or danger. God knows how weak we are. He knows how feeble we are as Christians, how prone we are when times uh, get tough to forget all this following Christ stuff and sort of go back to the old life before Christ. And yet when God begins a work of salvation, he's committed to completing it. And I think, actually, we should, we should at times uh, praise God for the many difficulties and trials that he shields us from. Many of the unseen dangers that we, we never experienced because of the kind providence of God. Jesus promised us that, that none shall pluck us out of his hands. So that's one reason he's guaranteeing our final salvation. Secondly, he's guaranteeing total victory over the enemy. See, although the human eye would look at this whole situation as a complete mess, something out of control, God has been fully in control of these events. Because this is a God who, secondly, triumphs gloriously. That's what's going on in chapter 14. It looks like Pharaoh is not finished with these uh, Hebrew slaves, but the truth is this. God is not finished with Pharaoh. As uh, chapter 14 and verse 3 and 4 make clear, when, when, when Pharaoh has his sort of uh, morning after the night before experience of changing his mind about letting the slave labor go, God's really at work here to triumph gloriously over Pharaoh. Um, verse uh, 1 and 2, God gives the people almost, almost an exact sort of ordnance survey spot where to camp. Tell the Israelites to turn back. I mean, they're on the way out. They're heading away from Egypt. And God says, no, turn back. Start heading back towards Egypt. And this is where I want you to camp, near these places so brilliantly pronounced by David. Um, and, um, and then, to that very place, God brings the enemy, as it were, to trap his people. Verse 3 Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. What's going on here in the crossing of the Red Sea is that God is bringing the enemy in in order that they would suffer a complete, final, irreversible defeat. And that all the people of God will be able to confidently go, knowing that all the enemy uh, are dealt with, that they will never attack again. It is, a, it is a massive display of God's glory that he can rescue us totally. Totally. I was really encouraged by that this week. That God, in his salvation, will conquer all sin. All, all, all the sin, even of my heart. He will completely defeat it all. And here's a moment of apparent defeat 
uh, and, and failure for God's people that will actually result in an inglorious triumph when all the enemies are defeated. Um, we'll see that as, as God kind of opens a way through the Red Sea for them to escape and as the Egyptians uh, get swallowed up by the waters crashing in on them. And of course, does that sound like something to you? A moment of apparent weakness and total defeat. There's actually a great moment of victory. Of course, this is, this is something that's a foretaste of what would happen in, in the coming of the Lord Jesus. To the enemies of, of Jesus Christ, they, they had backed Jesus into a corner. Uh, they found someone to betray him. They, they mocked him. They, they beat on him. They crucified him. And there's Jesus hanging there in apparent defeat and total weakness. To the human eye, this is, this is pitiful, isn't it? A scene that looked like nothing except for a monumental, tragic failure and defeat. And yet... This moment was actually the greatest moment of glorious triumph and power that the world has ever seen. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 puts it this way. It speaks of the cross of Christ as having achieved that great victory in this way. That our debt of sin was cancelled. That, that, our, that our sins were forgiven. And that Jesus is disarming the powers and authorities at the cross. He, he's making a public spectacle over them. He's triumphing over them in the cross. This moment of apparent total defeat is the moment of great and glorious victory. And of course the evidence of, of God's victory on the, 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 the crossing of the Red Sea was obvious the next day. Look at verse 30. The day that the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. There was no doubt of the total defeat. And the evidence for the victory of Christ, of course, was clear and obvious uh, as, as the uh, apostles rush and find an empty tomb and discover a risen, um, a risen Savior. Our salvation by Christ is, far, is a far greater miracle than the crossing of the Red Sea. God's glory wonderfully displayed in our salvation through Jesus Christ. And the third reason why God allows these events to, produce and, uh, uh, to happen is because he is producing obedient faith. Uh, there they are. They're about to embark on this long pilgrimage through a desert with many dangers. And God puts them in the middle of this hopeless situation to teach them to trust him. And so let's look at um, chapter 14 and verse 13. That's why Moses says to the quaking people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring to you today. He's saying to them, stop, stop seeing just with your physical eyes and look with the eyes of faith. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now what we need to see here is, uh, you know, we sometimes sing the song, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that, that God is God. And that's what Moses is telling them. Be still and know that God is God. But that's not a, fu a sort of a fuzzy, warm encouragement. But it's a rebuke. The, the pressure was on and they start to despair. And they start moaning and, and, and they start taking it out on their leader, Moses. Oh, we should never have left Egypt. Oh, we told you. Look at the mess we're in. You're a useless leader. 
And Moses says, be still. Wished. Be quiet. Would you just be quiet for a moment? Stand firm and trust the salvation of God. Sometimes we need to hear that, don't we? As we flap. We need someone very lovely to say to us, shut up. See what God's going to do. Be still and know that God is in control. Verse 15 is quite a surprise. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Get moving. It's almost as if uh, Moses has gone super spiritual. God's going to do it all. Just stand back and watch. And God says, Can't you see the Egyptians are coming? Get moving. Move forward. And then the cloud stands between the army and the people and and Moses raises his staff and and the Lord uses a strong wind, it says, to divide the water and enable the people to cross. And as they get to the other side, Moses extends his arm again and, and it comes back and swallows them up. And the outcome of this is that they learn to obey God's word in the middle of a trial and they grow in their faith. Look at verse 31 at the end. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, his servant. Do you know what? It is inevitable as Christians, as as pilgrim redeemed people, that we will face trials and difficulties. It is inevitable. Uh, James chapter 1 puts it this way, Consider it pure joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, what with our human eyes, as we look at our situation, can can seem as kind of an unwanted disaster. When we look around and all we see is a mess, it's actually an opportunity for the Christian to know that God is at work and that God purposes to display his glory. He's at work to secure our future. He's at work to grow our faith for that future. You know, the God who broke the power of the chariots in the Red Sea is the same God who broke the power of the evil one at the cross, who's the same God who calls on us today at the start of this week to trust him for our trials, for our difficulties, for the challenges that are ahead of us today. And I wonder, are we standing kind of terrified on the brink of of some commitment? Well, God's word would say, go forward. He's able to rescue you. Are we standing kind of uncertain on the brink of, of another week of confusion? Well, go forward, God's word says. Sure, there are plenty of battles ahead. There are trials. There are are discouragements. And we are weak. But God is mighty. We can trust that as his redeemed people, God is working out his purposes in our lives. And we are called to be still, trust him, move forward. And the third point this morning is to see that we have a God here who is fearfully praised. That's what we got in chapter 15. See, when we understand that, the, that we have a God who, who leads pilgrims, who triumphs gloriously, then we will be a people full of song. 
full of praise. The people who uh, praise this God who is worthy to be fearfully praised. There is something very natural about singing after a victory, isn't there? It's not uncommon after the supporters of a winning team to sing the scoreline, generally in the direction of the opposition. Have you noticed this? So I think our friends in Dundee probably sang something like this. Three nil, three nil, three nil. You know, you, you get the picture. I'm sure they sung other songs too. You wouldn't want to sing those either. But anyway, those are the sort of songs we sing. Oh, we are the champions, my friend. This is what you sing when there's a glorious victory, isn't it? Well, how much more wholehearted should our praise be when we understand the God of glory and of salvation? There in chapter 15, verse 1, it says that Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. And I bet they did it with a lot of joy. In fact, they did it with a hymn and a chorus. This settled some old debates. Can you have choruses and hymns? Yes? Here we are. It was settled in chapter 15. Uh, scripture sees a place for both. There's the hymn. It starts in verse 1. starts in this way. I will sing to the Lord, for he is, is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. And you can see at the end in verse 21 that Miriam, the prophetess, takes a tambourine and she starts dancing and singing with the rest of the ladies and she uses the opening refrain, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Now, why do we spend time singing in church? Are we just trying to fill up the time? No. Uh, Singing is the right and natural response to the gospel of our salvation. Uh, And there seems to be a fair bit of energy expended here on this day. And I think there's a place for energy as we uh, worship and praise God together. And I think we need to notice here that the focus of the singing is not to kind of generate some experience of God, but it's to express the experience of God, uh, of of his salvation that they've already had. This is God-centered praise, isn't it? Notice there's really nothing here about Moses. He doesn't talk about himself. Did you see the way I lifted my arm? And the sea went back. Oh, Lord, I praise you when I lifted my arm. The sea went back. There's nothing of that. Moses is not in the picture. It's all about God. This is God-centered praise. And and, and look at how much of his song is, 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 first of all, about in the first 12 verses, about what God had done. And then he moves on in verses 13 to 18 about uh, what God would do, how he'd continue to fulfill his promises to take them to the promised land. This is a, is a hymn of praise responding to the actions of God. It expresses their praise and thanksgiving, their adoration for God's mighty deeds. And it doesn't set out to create an emotion. It, it is an expression of the emotion created by God's grace. So I guess it's really important that the, of what, about what we sing, about the content of what we sing. Uh, Meaningless singing and music, contentless singing, will take us away from Christianity into paganism. What we need to see here is that our songs need to be full of rich, theological, doctrinal truth about who God is. Here we've got a a song that focuses on the God of covenant faithfulness, the God of power, the God of holy wrath. The Lord is a warrior, he sang. Defeating the enemies of God's people. 
He, he is the God of awesome glory, the God of love, verse 13. The God who, um, who will eternally reign, verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And you know the most important thing that you need, the most important faculty for worshipping God is not a good voice, and not a tuneful voice, it's a good memory. The Israelites sang because they'd seen the dead Egyptians at the end of chapter 14. And if we want to sing spiritually, we must know that God has saved us from our slavery, from our bondage, and that the people who will be most enthused to sing will be those who are most aware of being saved. I think if we have no sense of being rescued from our own experience of slavery to sin, then this song of Moses will, will remain a kind of an ancient lyric that we'll never be able to enter into. But you know, as Christians, that when we really get it, when we really get how serious our sin is, when we get how fearful is the holiness of God, when we get the wonder and the majesty of this God who has achieved such incredible salvation through his one and only son dying in our place, then we'll be able to make this song our own song. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is a very personal experience, isn't it? He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Look at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Verse 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. See, we, we look back to the cross of Christ and we look forward to the new heavens and new earth that he's guiding us to. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. You see, who's going to do this? Who's going to take us safe home? Is it going to be down to us? No, God's going to do it. You will bring them. You will plant them. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And the Christian can say, Amen to that. Just as the Israelites did those many centuries ago. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we ask that you would impress upon us once more your glory as our Redeemer. That you would help us to freshly remind ourselves of what you've done for us in Christ. The wonder of this gospel that has saved us. Father, we pray that you would uh, fill us afresh with your Spirit. That we may be a people who sing to your praise and glory. For you are a mighty God. Lord, we thank you even as we despair, as we look at our own sinfulness and our own struggles and our own disappointments and despair. Lord, we thank you that your word lifts us up to see that you're, you're a part of this. That you're a God who promises to lead us and guide us. That you are redeeming our fallen lives. 
and that you'll conquer every sin. We thank you that you will lead us safely home. So make us a people of joyful praise and thanks. Lord, make us a people of confidence as we trust you for this week ahead. For those with tough decisions, for those who are discouraged today, Lord, give them strength by your Holy Spirit to trust your promises and to step out in faith. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.